good to be in God's house, huh? Yeah, me and one person over there. Is that you, Jim? Yeah, all right. Good. Yeah. Well, I'll make a confession to you before I get started here. Um, I didn't think through the wet shirt uh, issue very well during uh, baptism, so um, I had to go back and hope there was something in my office. So here you go. That's what it is. Oh. This morning we're continuing this series called Celebration of Hope. And basically we've been looking at one thing. How do we offer hope to somebody else? The Bible's full of occasions where it teaches us about being a blessing to other people and offering them hope. God wants to use us this way, and so we've been talking about that. And we're going to be looking at a passage this week that uh, many of you walked through a small group lesson last, last weekend on this passage. And you'll know it's kind of a tough passage. God is pretty serious in this passage and talking to him. But what you also find in this passage is incredible hope that God offers us and brings us uh, into his presence to receive. And we'll talk about that as well. Incidentally, you know, our small groups are continuing uh, this weekend. Many of them meet tonight. This is the third week of our small group series. And I mean, we've had over 100 people uh, each week in small groups so far. Uh, and so if you are not plugged into a small group, or maybe you're brand new with this today and you don't even know what that is, but you're willing to maybe step out on a little risk of a, uh, an hour or two of your time and check it out, uh, we would love to set you up in a group. You just simply, there's a card in front of you uh, in the, the little pocket there. If you took that and just wrote your name and wrote small group, I'd call you this afternoon and say, hey, we have a few options. What works best for you? And you would uh, feel free to plug in to one of those groups. So we'd love you to experience some community that Wendover Hill has to offer. If you look at that back table, uh, it looks a little better this week. Right? We're starting to fill it out. If you, if you can't quite see the floor, there's probably just as much on the floor that, that's up there. And I would say uh, we're probably in the range of being able to fill closer to 20 backpacks with those food. Now remember, our goal is 35 uh, backpacks, so we still have some work to do. So uh, w w the office will be open all week long. Just drop some bags by. We'll, we'll load up that table for you. Um, uh, I think the brochure we gave you for Celebration Hope said we'd like to have the stuff by midweek so we can organize it. But uh, next Saturday morning when we gather to pack those bags, if that's the morning you can bring your bag, bring your bag. We, we're not going to refuse food uh, that we want to hand out. So next Saturday morning, 9 o'clock right here, we'll just have this whole place set up with tables. And as many of you that can come, we'd like you to come and just, just rejoice together that we're going to pack those backpacks. And then we're going to take them to Out of the Garden Project uh, for them to add to their ministry. So uh, that's next Saturday morning right here uh, at 9 o'clock. We're even going to bribe you with a little bit of uh, breakfast. But uh, it's got to be a light breakfast. We are packing food to give to people. All right? So we're not going to stuff your bellies. But uh, come and join us. It'll be a good time for those two hours next week. So, okay, enough said on that. Let's jump into uh, our passage this week. If you have your Bible, you want to jump to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, we'll start in verse 1. We'll be looking through verse 10. The passage uh, continues really to verse 12 is what we've been looking at. Um, but you'll be uh, welcome to look at that on your own or some in your small group as well. So uh, it will be up on the screen so you can, you can follow along there if you don't have your Bible this morning. You know, one of the most difficult challenges we find in any relationship is trying to keep it fresh. Are you with me on that? In any relationship you have, one of the toughest things to do is to try to keep that relationship fresh. So I'm reading an article on the internet and uh, it's talking about 11 ways to keep your relationship fresh. Um, and uh, one of the phrases that 
it was in response to was the phrase, and maybe you've uttered it yourself, is we just don't connect like we used to connect. You ever said that about a relationship? Maybe about your marriage relationship? We just don't connect like we used to connect. Well, this is 11 ways to help keep it fresh. So I read through some of these 11 ways, and I thought, well, let me share with you a couple of ones that were on there. Uh, One of the ones, it was the very first one on there. It was hold hands, hug, and give quick kisses often. Yeah, hold hands, hug, quick. Now this one's probably focusing a little bit more towards a romantic or a married relationship. Um, I don't know if in casual friendships we would put this one into play uh, quite uh, the same. But yeah, the article basically says the stuff of kind of our youth, you know, the, the, those type of little small infatuation type things that, that uh, you know, those youthful type things, that should, they should continue all the time in those type of relationships. It helps keep those things fresh. Well, I thought we'd test it out this morning. So I thought, whoever's sitting next to you, if you would just turn and maybe we'll work on that quick kiss this morning just to see if, it, if that's... Yeah. Now, now, hang on. See, now the uh, you adults... <laughs> you're very vocal about this. You adults uh, were enjoying this. You, you weren't quite laughing the same way. I thought the youth would really get in and be energized by that. Uh, maybe a small group tonight. Um, Here's another one, number two, date often. Now, date often. I mean, basically what it's saying is date your spouse or date the person. Now, that may seem like a duh statement, but uh, it, it was number two on the list. There's this movie called The Proposal. Have you heard of it? Yeah. Uh, where it, it's a story, if you don't know it, about this kind of dominant female boss. And uh, she really forces her male assistant to marry her because she's going to be deported. All right. So they go away on this weekend to meet his family, and of course, as all these romantic comedy go, you know, they start off totally distant, and by the end, you know, they are, you know, madly in love with each other, or, or however it comes about. You know what I'm talking about. And there's this line at the end of the movie, it, the final line, really, of the movie. It, it, it's building, and the background music is going, and all this stuff. And he turns to her and he says, "Margaret, will you marry me? Because I'd like to date you." Is that the lamest line you've ever heard? I'm sorry, ladies. <laughs> I mean, every time uh, I, I, I hear that, because it's, it's a movie Sri likes a little bit, um, every time I, I see the line, um, there was probably some, some holding back of the laughter early on, but not anymore. It's kind of full-blown. Um, actually, usually I'm mocking the line as I'm saying it. Uh, but you know the experts really are saying here, it's true. You have to keep dating the person. Keep dating. Keep scheduling important time together. Keep wanting to do adventurous stuff together. It's important in a relationship to keep things fresh. Here's a third one. It says, strengthen your art of conversation. Strengthen your art of conversation. Now, men, don't get, don't get nervous for just a second. This is nothing to do with an art gallery or looking at paintings. Um, that's not what it's saying there. It's your art of conversation, what you talk about. Basically, it's saying, let's not talk about nothing. Let's not talk about nothing. Let's not just talk about the kids' schedule. Let's not just talk about what we need to get done or or what we don't need to get done or what we have in the checking account. But talk about meaningful stuff. When you go home from church, talk about what was the Lord doing in your heart today? What was going on? What are you feeling? You know, are you lonely? Are you excited? What, you know, those, those type of conversations. So there was three things that are good tips. There's eight more that were on there just like it and probably some pretty good things. I actually bookmarked the page because uh, I thought those were, those were good things for my life 
Why do we need them? That's the question. Why do we need to keep our relationships fresh? Why don't we instinctually always keep those relationships fresh? Well, often we get into a phrase, or we get into a, a rut, and we use a phrase often to describe that rut. You know what the phrase is? Take a look at it. It's on the screen. Going through the motions. Do you know what that means, going through the motions? That, in a different dialect, that means going through <laughs> the motions. <laughs> Usually when there's a PowerPoint issue, it was because I did something wrong um, or when I set it up. So, well, trust me, the phrase is going through the motions. Do, do you know this phrase? You know what I'm talking about? Do you ever say this? You know, man, I just feel like I'm going through the motions. Or that person, they're just, they're just going through the motion. Um, what do we mean by that? When we say going through the motion, it means actively by, you know, that we are doing something, but either there's not a lot of oomph behind it or our heart's not quite in it or we're doing it to try to gain an advantage for something else, but it's, it's not quite the all-in, all-invested, all-the-way. It's going through the motions. Have you ever gone through the motion in your job? Maybe in your marriage? You ever gone through the, uh, through the motions in how you maybe handle your kids or interact with your kids? How about in your spiritual journey, your spiritual life? Ever feel like you're just kind of rolling through the motions? Good church attendance? Rolling through the motion? Yeah. You know, the problem with going through the motions is that it leads us to another phrase, uh, more of a question, I guess, and it's this one. How come nothing good happens in my life? When we go through the motions at work, you're not getting many raises, right? <laughs> not getting many promotions when you're rolling through the motions. When you're rolling through the motion in your marriage, uh, there's usually not a lot of spark of energy happening in that marriage. When we're rolling through the motions with our kids, uh, the connection's quite a bit different. And on and on, you can fill in the gap. How come nothing good is happening in my life? And so when we're going through the motions, we have this other question we have to deal with. Any of this sound familiar to anyone? It does to me. I can look at many, many points of my life in my recent life where I've thought, man, that describes the situation I'm in. Well, this is exactly the place that the people of God found themselves in this passage we're going to be looking at. This kind of going through the motion. Again, it's the same passage we worked through it last week in small group, but we're going to be kind of hitting it from a, a little bit different angle. So if you have it, uh, take a look at it. Um, but let me give you just a quick background as we enter the passage. Um, a lot of Old Testament history, it can be divided kind of into three sections. And, and in that Old Testament, we have the time that was before the captivity, during the captivity, and after the captivity. You see, the, the Babylonians at some point in time, they came in and just took over God's people, took them away, and became slaves. This was a major event in the Old Testament history. And so a lot of the history can be divided up as what was going on before that happened, what was going on during that captivity, and what was going on after they were returned home and they were no longer slaves. And so this passage in Isaiah, this is set after the captivity. You see, they had sinned against God, and God eventually let the Babylonians come in and just wipe them out, take them off to captivity. Many of the Hebrews died either on the way or in captivity. And then eventually their heart cried out to God and, and they were returned to their homeland. 
And so this happened after that captivity. This is the Hebrews are back in their land. In fact, this is a time where uh, there is some rebuilding going on. There might even be some overlap in the story of Isaiah, or excuse me, of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. So we have not full prosperity, but we have some type of growth happening back in this passage in Isaiah here. So that gives you a little bit of the background. And so now let's jump into the passage and we will look at uh, just a few verses to start verse by verse and then we'll kind of talk about this overall teaching that can help us. So take a look at it, verse 1. God is talking to the prophet Isaiah and he says to him, Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice in a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. God is telling Isaiah to shout like a trumpet. So right away, what we know to start is that God has a message he wants Isaiah to share to his people that has exclamation point behind it. It's a significant message that he wants to present uh, to the people. And now think about it. The people had done evil in God's eyes. That's what brought on the captivity in the first place. Now they were generations in captivity before they returned home. Many times when we go through a traumatic situation, uh, we're kind of steered, steered right. And we think about, it, I don't want to ever have to endure that again, so I'm going to stay away from whatever caused that. But then there's other times in our life where even though something might have caused us harm or struggle, we seem to bounce right back into it again, right back into it. And we're going to find in a minute that it seems like God's people have bounced right back into something. But it might look a little bit different than before. We'll talk about that more later. So he says, shout like a trumpet. You see, here's what would have gone on at the time, is they would have used ram's horn, and a ram's horn would have been used to kind of be blown, and then somebody would hear that ram's horn, they'd pick up their ram's horn and blow, and then somebody else and blow, and it would, it would kind of go throughout the land, and this would be a proclamation. Um, it might be declaring uh, that uh, enemies are near, or declaring that, I, in this case, like there is a message from the Lord, Uh, But something would have been declared here. And so that is the type of voice that God is saying for him to use. And so whatever he's about to say, this is for the whole land to hear. It's that serious. So right away we get that picture of how serious God is. Have you ever been kind of in a room and somebody walks in just full-blown serious? And you're like, right away, you know that person's serious. And everything kind of starts to turn and focus. Maybe you're shooting the breeze with, with some guys in the room, and then somebody comes in. Maybe they're looking for somebody. say, where's Mark? And like, right away, you know this is serious business. Whatever he's, he's got to say, it's serious. That's what's happening here. God is bursting on the scene, and he's saying, shout it out, because what I got to say is pretty seriously. Uh, God explains uh, pretty much right away what he's got. Let's take a look at Isaiah 58, 2 and 3. It says this, For day after day they seek me. They are the Hebrews, his people. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of, his, of its God. They ask me for, what decision, for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Notice, first of all, in this passage, before we jump at the Hebrews too much here, first off, we find that they are seeking God. 
God acknowledges it himself. Did you notice that there? He acknowledges that they are a nation that is seeking me, but he's still not quite pleased. I don't know about you, but when I read something like that, I think sometimes, like my knee jerk is like, what is God's problem here? What, what is up? I mean, is this just a bad day for the big guy, or what is happening here? God acknowledges they are seeking me. Have you ever had time where you have been seeking, you feel like you're seeking God, and yet you still feel like you just haven't connected with him? You just haven't connected. And yet you, you would categorize what you're doing as seeking. It's the same thing here. It's clear they're seeking God. In fact, we, we're going to find that they're in the middle of a spiritual fast where they've put food aside to seek or to, to look for God. So what's God's issue? Why does he say in verse 2 and 3 this? Why does he say, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God? I mean, this is clearly tongue-in-cheek here. God is obviously not impressed with the seeking the Hebrews are doing here. They're seeking, and yet God is almost half, like he's sounding like he's throwing a little mocking statement, as if, as if they really care. That's what God's saying here. Why is he saying something so really strong and serious in here? What is it that he's so bothered and upset about here? Remember, it's God himself that's directing Isaiah's words very clearly here. Have you ever seen, right? Have you ever seen uh, these movies, you know, like maybe they're, like they happen a lot in the teen movies where there's like a bully, you know, and the bully is picking on some person and, and yet every time somebody besides the one being picked on sees the bully, they're like this fine, outstanding citizen, you know, um, where, you know, they're punching him and then, oh, hi, Mrs. Olsen, you know, kind of, you know, those, that type of scenario that plays over and over in a lot of movies and maybe even in kids' movies. Yeah, like that. And yet the person being picked on is like, why can nobody see that this is a bully beating me up or picking on me or taking my lunch money or stealing my bike or whatever the case may be? But everybody around him kind of sees. Now eventually, in those movies, everybody discovers he's a bully. Whether it's a comedy or a serious movie, they always discover he's a bully. You know what God is saying here? I see it. I see what's going on. I see what's happening. You're seeking me, and I see what's really going on, and so I'm not really happy with your seeking. What is it? What's not going on, or what's really happening behind the scene here? Take a look at Isaiah 58. Uh, this is the second part of verse 3 through verse 4. Take a look at this. He says this about this spiritual fast that they're going through. Yet on the day of fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in, in striking each other with wicked fist. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. You know, God is letting the Hebrews know here, you can't manipulate your fast by seeking me and then going out and acting like you do. It said there in that passage, I mean, think about these, a fierce of these things. Uh, the quarreling and strife, so there's bickering that's going on, there's fighting that's happened. Quarreling and strife, I think of these verbal attacks, right, where they're kind of wrestling, fussing, angry back and forth. You know, I'm going to confess, there's been times where 
as I'm in church, whether I've been the pastor or I was at a church as a layperson, where it was a great service, and on the way home, my wife and I are bickering and quarreling in the car, and the kids are hearing every word. And God is saying here, how can, how can you come before me in this spiritual fast, seeking and seeking, and yet your fast is full of this quarreling, this strife? He goes a little further, and he says, you know, striking each other with wicked fists. Um, now, Sri and I have never gone that far uh, in those, those little interactions. Um, but it says striking with wicked fists. I mean, they're talking about full-blown fighting is, what, is what's happening as well. And so overall, he's saying, look, how do these things match up? That you, you can't come to me with this seeking and not want to deal with what else is going on in your life. Jesus says, you know what? Or God says, excuse me, it's not consistent with the character of God. It's not consistent. I mean, what is, what is a character of God? One of the greatest verses about what God wants us to be and what he wants us to do that speaks to his character is found in Micah verse, or chapter 6, verse 8. One of the passages we're going to be working through tonight or this week in our small groups. Listen to what it says. He has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This type of action, it shows the character of God. It shows what he wants us to be about. And so God is saying, how can, how can we just seek and seek and fast, and yet we have these other things that are so mixed in with it? These things, these things don't match up. Overall, in a blunt way, he's saying, this just doesn't look like Christian stuff. That's what God's saying to him. Can you relate? I mean, are there times where you feel this way as well? There's this great passage in Romans chapter 7 where Paul is wrestling with his own Christian walk and he says this phrase in Romans chapter 7. He says, why do I keep doing what I don't want to do? What I know I shouldn't be doing, why do I keep doing? And it's the same struggle sometimes that we have that while we want to seek God and we're trying to seek God and we're wanting to hear from God and we're wanting to be close to God, we still have to deal sometimes with this other stuff, these selfishness things that are in our life or this desire to have my own way or this desire to be right or the list goes on and on and we keep fighting and struggling with these things all the time. We, we might be like these people in a fast seeking God. And then at times, we ask the question, why does nothing good happen in my life? Well, God has an answer for us this morning. He has an answer that talks about this. It's a different way of looking at, in this chapter, the fast. It's a different way of looking at seeking God. In fact, let's take a look at what he talks to the people about in Isaiah 58, 5. Take a look at it on the screen. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen only for a day for a man to humble himself? Is it, not for, is it not for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Now take a look at that passage before we go too quickly. I mean, notice on here, he says, humbling yourself, bowing your head like as if praying, and lying on sackcloth and ashes, you know, another form of, of kind of humbling yourself and praying and being before God, 
He's saying, you know, all those type of things, is that enough? Is that the fast? Is that what we're doing? Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I've grown up, well, I was 16 when I became a Christian, and I've heard quite a few times that, that seeking God, you know, I'm supposed to go and I'm supposed to pray. I'm supposed to be in prayer, right, before the Lord and seeking Him in that type of prayer. I'm supposed to kind of humble myself and, and uh, be quiet before the Lord. And yet God in this passage would be leading us to think, there's more to it. You've kind of missed the mark. That's what he's telling these people. I remember taking this trip uh, to Dallas and having a barbecue. Have you ever done a Texas barbecue? Anybody from Texas? No, Mike, you know what I'm talking about. You know, um, you, you go to Texas, and, and barbecue is a little bit different. I'd grown up in Southern California and Los Angeles, and, um, you know, there's not a lot of big-time barbecues in, in Los Angeles where I grew up. Um, so we went there, and uh, um, I called what we were doing, and our, our, I was telling, telling them about our own barbecue that we were having uh, back there in L.A., and, um, and they looked at me kind of like, this is Shree's brothers, like, um, that's not a barbecue. And then they started to explain what a real barbecue were, was. Excuse me. Um, they said, you know, a real barbecue is, you know, when you get the big five-gallon, or not five-gallon, but the big, what, what a 50-gallon drum out there, and, and you, you know, it's cut in half, and you have the grates, and you have the charcoal going, and, and the big pieces of meat that look like, you know, most of the cow laying uh, on there. And, um, um, and in a big barbecue, there was lots of people there in the backyard, and there was lots of sides, you, and uh, baked beans was one of the absolute requirements, apparently, uh, there. And that barbecue sauce had to be constantly slathered over uh, that type of stuff. Now, I know in North Carolina, the whole barbecue world's a little bit different, so nobody start to get frustrated and upset. Um, all right, I'm just telling you a story. Jeff, I'm just telling you a story from Texas, okay? All right? Um, and they, I remember them telling me that if you don't do all this, if you don't get the barbecue sauce going, and if there's an ounce of uh, gas grill out here, that is not a barbecue. What they're really telling me is there's more to it. There's more to it than when I throw a little propane tank out and I put a hamburger or a hot dog on it. In fact, her brother very clearly told me there will be no hot dogs at our barbecue. All right? <laughs> you can put the hot dog in the microwave for the kids for a snack after school, um, but we won't be having hot dogs at the barbecue. They're telling me there's more to it than that. There's more to it. And God is saying the same thing to his people here. He's saying, is the prayer bad? No, be, be in prayer, be before the Lord. He's saying, there's more to it. And we're going to talk about that in just a couple minutes. But I thought maybe to, to visualize a little stronger what the passage is going to say in verses 6 and 7, I want to invite uh, my friend Tina to come up. And Tina's going to share with you a little her testimony. And you're going to feel and see in her testimony what God is about to talk about with his people and in verses 6 and 7. Thanks, Tina. So, what is God getting at? What's the fast? How does that play into it? Somebody, uh, a family of six being hungry. Take a look at Isaiah 58, 6 and 7, and hear this passage. One of the stronger passages says this, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, 
when you see him naked to clothe him and do not turn away your own flesh and blood. Now remember that the Hebrews were recently in captivity and now they're back home. Like I have this picture of when they were in captivity that it was like a dog-eat-dog world and that there was just this scrambling for every bit that they can get, kind of an every-man-for-himself mentality. Get the food you can get, get your immediate family fed the way you can. Just try to stay alive and make it through. But this isn't the situation. They're back from captivity. They have their freedom now. We have reports, if you read kind of the church history and how it lines up, that prosperity was starting to come back. The wall was even starting to be built, which meant there was protection, and which meant supplies of food could start moving in and out with more safety. That's kind of the scenario in here. And whereas they may have not been back where they were in the terms of crops and food and that type of thing, certainly they weren't where they were in captivity. And God's looking down and saying to these folks here, look, your fast is great, your prayer is great, but look around you. There's still people out there that are hungry. There's still people out there that are struggling. There's still people out there that have difficulties that you can be a blessing to, and you've chosen not to do it. Listen to the language God used here. Is it not to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Now, they had just come back from captivity. There would have been times for them that their job as slaves in captivity was to put the yoke that was designed for the animal on their back and to walk and to help plow the fields with their own just human legs. They would have understood this type of metaphor and this type of imagery God is using here to tell them, is it not to get that yoke off people's back? That's the kind of fast I'm looking for. Is it not to break these chains of injustice? They had just been slaves. In the Old Testament, uh, sometimes the, phrase, the, the word slave is used, but often the more equivalent word that we might understand is this indentured servant type of setup where there might be something you owe and that you work for the person. In fact, God had put these rules in place in the law on how you were to treat your slaves or indentured servants. And every seven years, there was absolute freedom. You let them go. Do you think they experienced any of that type of freedom in the generations when they were in captivity? Not at all. And now they're back home. But we find out over in Jeremiah that they were actually keeping in place the things that had been done in captivity. We get one story in the book of Jeremiah that they let all their, their captives go or they let their indentured servants go for the, the seventh year and then they changed their mind and they rounded them up and they brought them back to work. This is post-captivity. God is looking and saying, look, you're not slaves anymore. This is not the Babylonians that are doing this to you. He's looking at them and the hardest thing that God is saying to them, and hear this, is he saying, you're being the oppressor. You're the ones. You, my people, are oppressing my people. You've come back from captivity and you've kind of scrambled to help yourself to become prosperous. And then over here in the distance is some people that are struggling in that area. They don't have the food. They don't have the clothes. They don't have the shelter. And yet you are playing the wheels of injustice just the same as you experienced in captivity. And yet, you've come to me and you're seeking me, and you're fasting, and you're asking of me. 
Can you understand now why God had such a hard time with them seeking him? God is saying, I, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with you coming and asking when I look and my people are starving. You know, when I look and my people are walking around, and when they say naked, that's what they meant in Scripture. They didn't just mean they may have a little bit of clothes. They mean they don't have any clothes. There would have been only really one garment they would have been able to wear anyway. If they don't have that, they got nothing. And God is saying, I just I can't handle my people being like that and my, my other people not joining in and helping. And so this is big, big business to God. Take a look at what John Oswald said. He's a professor of Old Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary. He says, it's not that Isaiah or the other prophets or God himself were, were against fasting, but they were opposed to any religious ceremony that was not accompanied by righteous living and, get this, good works of grace. I love the way he describes that there. Good works of grace, that we are offering grace when we care for somebody like that. Imagine this. Let's say you, uh, you've established with your child that uh, they are to clean up their room. Have you ever tried this with your child? Tried to get them to clean their room? Um, yeah, so if you have kids now, or if, uh, you know, if you're at the point where your kids are out of the house and, uh, and you're thankful that uh, you don't have to battle them about cleaning your room, but whatever the case, you know the scenario of cleaning the room, right? So let's say you have your, your routine, your kid's supposed to clean their tomb. You've taught them this, you've gone through this huge process, sometimes maybe even rewarded them when they got them right. Uh, um, and so, so this has all been in place, right? And you notice there's a season that you've gone by and the room is not getting cleaned up. I mean, you go by and it's just not looking, it's not looking right. It's not looking good. Um, maybe there's sometimes where it's half fake there, but you know what's under the bed. You know what's going on. And overall, I mean, they're no longer kind of meeting that expectation that you had on them. The, the room's a mess. Um, and so let's say you're coming down the hall one time, right? And uh, you're, you're, you're heading to that room, or you will go by that room, and your kid comes running up to you. Now, I've, I've got a five-year-old, so I'm, I'm kind of picturing her, but you can picture whatever, you know, your kid is age. If they're grown and out of the house, um, maybe they won't leap into your arms like my five-year-old will. But uh, they're coming down the hall, and, and you know, it leaps into your arms, throws a big hug around your neck and says, Daddy, I love you. And I'm hugging and I'm looking over his shoulder and I can see that room is a mess. <laughs> and so one of two things I think is going on here. Either uh, little Sierra here uh, hasn't cleaned the, her room and she knows she hasn't cleaned her room and she is using this show of affection and love and hug around my neck to manipulate me to uh, kind of say, you know, uh, it's okay. Or she's trying to run interference so that my eyes don't actually see her room because who could be mad at an adorable five-year-old girl when they're hugging your neck? It could be one scenario. I mean, she could be bright enough to be pulling, to consciously pulling that off. Um, yeah, I mean, kids are pretty creative. Um, or two, she could be genuinely wanting to show me affection. I mean, she genuinely could see me and want to say, I want to express my love to you. There you are. Here I am. I want to express my love, and I want to hug. And, and you know, as little kids do, they, they want to leap in your arms and, and do things like that. And she could genuinely be doing that, and at the same time, not drawing the connection that she hasn't done something that we've asked her to do over and over and over again, something we know she knows is right to do. 
In fact, you might say, say something to her, you know, like, hey, honey, I love you, but, you know, you need to get back in there and clean up that room. Um, you know, you might say it nice and calm. Uh, in your head, you're probably thinking of that, no more hugging, get the room clean. Um, it could be that second scenario as well. Well, if you're in the, the uh, if it's the first scenario, um, uh, well, I'm sorry, let me, I'm jumping ahead. Let me ask you, uh, which of these scenarios maybe is true for you sometimes when we're, you're talking about your own walk with God and what God might want us to be about in the world? If it's the first scenario uh, where we're, we're trying to run a little interference with God um, and we're, you know, we're you know, doing our fast, kind of like in the story here, or something seeking God, and yet we've ignored the things that he might want out of us. I'm not sure God has a lot of patience at times with that first scenario if we're trying to manipulate or run interference. But in the second case, where we're, we're wanting to seek God, we're desiring to seek, and yet we just have not drawn the connection that God has said, you know, there's, there's more I want you to be about. If you'd get out there and do these things that I put before you, they'll be for your good and for your life transformation as well. In that, then I have good news. God has incredible patience to keep teaching us and to keep probing us and keep pushing us forward to, if we have that type of setup. Here in this situation, I don't know in Scripture exactly what the heart of the people was. It would seem like God is pretty upset about it. But whatever the case is, I thought we'd finish off this morning and I'd just share three really quick things that if you're at the point where you think in your Christian life or in your walk with God, you're seeking Him or you're doing things, but you feel like maybe, maybe I'm just kind of going through the motions. There's certainly no freshness to my relationship with God. Let me share three quick things out of this passage and then we'll be done this morning. The first is this. The world is bigger than you or I. Did you know that? The world is bigger than us. One of the most exciting things about the Christian journey is that we get to be a part of something big. Big. I don't know about you, does, does it get tiring sometime in your life to constantly be just taking care of yourself? To constantly just be dealing with your own issues? I mean, does it get to a point sometime where it just feels like the fulfillment of that, the fulfillment of Tom's world, is just not quite enough? I think I was that, that way way back in my teen years. You know, I'm 38 now. Um, I just, I don't want to live day after day and year after year thinking really what there is in, in the world out here is just to kind of take care of my own stuff. The joy of the scripture is that we get to partner with God in this great big story and we get to be a part of it. And that's why he says in, in Isaiah 58, 6 and 7, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of the injustice? He's saying there that you get to be a part of this. You get to do this type of fasting. You get to do this type of spiritual discipline that's not just sitting here at the church each week and hearing some good music and a halfway decent sermon. You get to go out and you get to actually do and be a part of it and to care for people. It's a great joy if you realize the world is bigger, it'll bring a fresher look to your walk with God. Whole fresh. Because when you walk down the street, you start to see somebody and say, I could, I could do something in their life. I could be a blessing there. And I could do, and on and on. Here's a second one. Um, something to realize is, you're not the only one. Do you know that? 
Whatever you're going through, whatever you're dealing with, whatever type of scenario in your life, if it's tough relational issues, if it's financial issue, if it's kind of you're seeking God but you feel like your, your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and coming right down to the floor, realize you're not the only one. In fact, God designed it that we would interact in community and help one another out in these ways. Take a look at this, this passage in 1 Kings 19, 18. In chapter 19, I, Elijah is, is running from God, really, and, and God would kind of grab hold of him, and then he would go through this speech with God, and at the end of the speech, he would say, and I'm the only one out there doing it. And after the second time, God kind of says, okay, that's enough, shut up, I want to speak now. And this is what he says. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. He's saying, enough, Elijah, you're not the only one. There's this whole network and community of believers still out there. These, these people out there, that they'll partner with you to get it done. And so the same is in the Christian church. You're not the only one out there. When you start to partner with the community of God to deal with things in your life, you'll see something fresh. And finally this, let your actions help you grow in your faith. It's true that your faith alone is what saves you, but let your faith grow with your actions. Getting out and doing something in your walk. Doing something. We've been, been talking you through some scenarios in Celebration of Hope, but you're smart enough to think about millions of ways that you can get out there and do some stuff. And there's this great reward that God wants to give. And we'll finish with this, Isaiah 58:10. It says this, Then you will find your joy in the Lord and will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. You see, the end of this passage where God has just spoke to his people so bluntly and harshly, he says, if you'll change your fast, if you'll change your fast to getting out and caring for those in need, to breaking these chains, to feeding people, clothing people, there will be great joy that will come. And as I love how he says it, I will cause you to ride in triumphs. I just love how he says that. And so for you, the same thing you can claim in your life and this freshness in your relationship with the Lord can come back and be there. Let me pray for you. And then we'll finish off singing. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for your word. And Father, I just pray that uh, if there is any prompting in anyone's heart that they need to be more involved in serving the needs of those in the world, that they would walk right out of here and they'd put it into place right away. They don't need to wait for an event or uh, uh, some other program. They can do it right now and here, Lord. Be a part of being a blessing to somebody, to serving somebody, to feeding somebody and clothing somebody. Um, give them uh, the drive to keep doing that. Lord, bless our project here, Lord. Bless our endeavor to feed, fill backpacks and feed hungry kids. And Lord, we'll give you the praise and glory in your son's name. Amen.